it, so I should be fine with ask, asking them, um, answering them. So five, six, and seven is, is what I'll, I'll focus on. Um, so I'm going to present the first question to you, Evelyn. Oh, the first one as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so it's basically, um, I've just gotten that question from your your information to me. Okay, no problem. Um, sorry, Lola, I have to go, but I'll log yeah. in three minutes. Okay, fine. Okay, so we'll, we'll three minutes, everybody. Okay, okay. that's explain everything we're going to do today. But firstly, I'm just going to introduce um, my fellow KT Lawyers Forum members, starting with Daniel. Hello, my name is Daniel. I'm a family law solicitor. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Esso Nato de Mello. I'm a barrister with 15 years practice, um, specialising in human rights and uh, commercial law. Hi, I'm Mamia Endineme. I'm, I'm an, I'm an in-house solicitor um, and I work in university. Hi, I'm a commercial lawyer and I'm a Whitehall lawyer. Good morning, I'm Evelyn Okomia. I'm um, a child protection lawyer working for the London Borough of Camden. Okay. And then Dr. Solomon. Morning, Solomon is a solicitor in financial services in the city of London. All right, thank you. Okay, so now I'm going to introduce the panel speakers. We've just heard Evelyn, she's one of the final speakers, and then we've got Samantha. Hello, good morning. My name is Samantha Davis. I'm a barrister of 17 years call. Um, I practice in crime, human rights, and have also practiced in family law. Okay, and we've heard from Danielle, and then we've got um, Pastor Mrs. Um, Awayera. Hello, my name is Toyin, and I'm a social worker working with London and then finally we've got um, Reverend Scott Templeton. Morning, everyone. <laughs> My name is Scott and I'm uh, one of the leaders and pastors at KT. Thank you. Excellent. All right, so we are going to move on to the next part of the agenda. Uh, in fact, I'll just run through the agenda. So after the introductions, we're going to have Dr. Solomon Osage introduce um, Kensington Temple and, uh, and the vision, uh, the giant's vision. And then we'll have an opening prayer by Ogoma and we'll go into the panel discussion, which will be followed by a short message from Esther. And then we'll have a question and answer session at the end so if you have any questions please put them on the chat if you also have any prayer requests please put them on the chat as this is um as we're going to be looking into this we're going to be praying at the end so it could be a personal prayer request in relation to the topic or perhaps a prayer request for a friend or a relative or a colleague i also need to draw to your attention the fact that this webinar is being recorded and it's going to be placed on our church website and then um, if you have any questions, please put them on the chat. We will deal with the Q&As. We'll deal with the questions during the Q&A at the end. All right, so Dr. Solomon Asagi. Um, you, um, yes, thank you. Thank you, and um, good morning to you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm struggling a little bit with my voice this morning. I've got a bad cold and a sore throat. Um, just bear with me. Um, 
So, so first of all, I wanted to welcome you all to um, to this to this webinar, which is hosted by uh, the Law Forum uh, at KTLCC. Um, I I can't see all the participants, um, but I I would sort of assume that, that there are members of our congregation as well as um, guests. Um, so for, for the benefit of those people, uh, a little bit about the church. KTLCC is a network of churches around London. Um, the central church is in Notting Hill Gate and uh, the senior minister is uh, Reverend Colin Dye. Uh, he is supported by a senior team of people, including his wife, Amanda, who heads the women's ministry and the pastoral care team uh, in the church. Um, so this morning's um, session, as I said, is hosted by the um, lawyers. And the forum is one of the giants um, that we have established in uh, KTLC. Um, and, and what we do with the Giants is um, they're really helping to, to tackle um, and contribute to, um, to the narrative in many aspects of, um, of our society. There are other, other Giants, uh, for example, in education, medicine, there is one in the arts, media and television. And there's a newly established giant to tackle um, racism. Um, so, so there are a number of these which we invite uh, and encourage uh, people to participate in. So I hope that you enjoy the uh, session today and we would like you to give us your feedback and suggestions about how we can do this better and how we can uh, improve what we try to do this morning. Um, you'll hear from uh, contributions from a number of people uh, who um, we brought together uh, because of their own expertise in some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning. So um, I hope I hope you enjoy this, and we welcome your feedback and your observations and contributions to um, how we, we develop these forums going forward. So thank you, and and enjoy enjoy the session. Thank you very much, Dr. Solomon. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next part of this um, uh, session today. We're going to begin the, uh, we, oh, beg your pardon now. <laughs> we're going to start with an open prayer, um, Ogoma. Father, we thank you for this seminar. We thank you for making this possible. Concerning this seminar, Father, we ask that you will cause the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so we're going to begin with the panel discussion. Again, on our panel, we've got um, Evelyn, who is with the local authority. She's a local authority lawyer. We've got Samantha Davis, who is a barrister. And we've got um, Daniel, who is a family lawyer and uh, a social worker. Uh, Mrs. Doreen Awayara, and then uh, Pastoral Support Reverend Scott Templeton. Okay, so our first question, and this is addressed to Evelyn, but if anybody else would like to chip in, please go ahead. So, Evelyn, some of the ways that there has been an impact on the family has been financially, 
um, domestic violence and variable changes in children. In, in relation to um, financial challenges, what has been the main issue or concern that you're aware of? Um, I'd just like to start off saying that the last six months has been somewhat unprecedented. It's, it's created a shift in how we all live our lives and it's impacted on, on people's lives in, entirely in so many different ways. And one of the ways is financially. From my experience in, in the work that I do, I've seen that um, there's many parents, for example, that have been furloughed. So they're, in terms of that, they've um, lost wages. There's also a problem with the, um, with the benefit system, um, a lack of staff within government agencies to deal with the benefit system has meant that some families are not getting the required benefits that they're supposed to get. And some families actually have had to apply and make applications for further benefits because there's been a lack of work as well. So that has hit families very, very hard um, financially. We've had um, kind of the, the double um, kind of difficulties of children not being able to go to school. That has had an impact also on parents working as well. Children being at home has meant that parents have been had to be at home with their children, homeschooling and trying to work as well. In some cases, some um, parents haven't been able to work, which again um, places financial burden um, on, on the family. And there's also a group of people, 16 to 17 year olds, which I think has been, I think that group in particular has been somewhat missed. You don't hear about them in the media, but they're a group of people that may have not been in education, for example, um, but because of the um, unprecedented times, they're not able to find work and there's difficulties with them claiming benefits as well. So it's had an all round effect on people financially um, and, and that exacerbates a whole load of, of different um, social ills and, and symptoms. I, I could go on mental health, stress within the home. So it's had a really, really um, adverse effect on, on families and financial and the financial aspect of that is probably just one one side of the coin. Okay. Thank you. And then um, would you like to elaborate on the behavioural changes in children? I know you've already touched on that a little bit, but yes. um, would you, do you want to um, elaborate on that? So I'm sure many people would agree that um, for children in particular, the school is, is really the bedrock of their, of their day, of their routine of their life. They, children spend most of their time at school. So without children being at school, it does have an adverse effect on children um, socially, mentally, also academically. So what I've seen is that there has been an increase um, in, in children's um, problems being exacerbated. Um, many children rely on the school, for example, even for a meal sometimes, and it also helps in terms of, of the daily routine. So then when you take that, um, that rock from them, it really then alters the way that their day-to-day -day living um, um, operates. Um, and them not being at school also has the added impact of stress in the home, which will alter their behavior. You, you get more children misbehaving, um, acting out, and those relied on support services at school, therapy, counseling, um, that kind of thing, um, being with peers, um, teachers offering that support, all of that is taken away because of COVID. And then they're left at home having to um, stay at home, 
with their parents or their siblings and all that support is is then lost and so what's that what that has happened what that has created is created an, in, an increase of cases coming to to social services that's been evident in in the borough that i've been been working is because a lot of families simply can't cope and children find it difficult when their everyday routine is altered in, in such a big way thank you okay so um and then one of the ways that we know that um, there's been an impact has been on family relationships either between the couples or parents and children so um uh, my next question um, um to samantha is coerced control what, what does this mean how is it defined in law can you please um explain yes yeah so um first of all good morning everyone um and thank you for having me on the panel and thank you for joining us today. Um, as um, Evelyn's already outlined, this period has had a very severe impact on family and perhaps we can just call them domestic relationships um, uh, more than any other time. And particularly because people are at home, um, people aren't going out to work, people aren't going to school. Um, and therefore the other support systems there was a time when people weren't even going into doctor's surgeries. So the support systems that naturally existed to um, assist those in vulnerable positions have effectively or did fall away. Um, now, in, in respect of coercive and controlling behavior, this is a very new offense. And I just want to take some time to sort of um, explain it. It was introduced in 2015. So it came in. Um, under Section 76 of the Serious Crime Act um, in, in 2015. So it's, it's a fairly recent concept. And I say that because sometimes people don't think of things that occur in this arena as amounting to a criminal offence or something in respect of which they might be able to get external assistance in dealing with. Um, what it requires, what the law requires, is that person A, so that is the perpetrator, engages in a course of conduct towards person B that is controlling and coercive. Um, so um, again, so you'll ask, but what does that mean? Because there's repetition even within the legislation. Um, it means really, um, it's not a term of art, it really is the natural meaning of that, those words in ordinary language and ordinary sort of life. Um, so what, what is required is for example, that person A, tries to control person B. And the control aspects can be, for example, controlling their finances, monitoring their phone, um, restricting their ability to go out and participate in social events. Um, when you look at the guidance on this, it includes putting the person down, undermining them. But this is not, just, just to be clear, so that it comes within the remit of the law, it's not sort of a one-off incident. Um, the law, it's got to be repetitive and it's got to be of an order that by um, virtue of its frequency, that person is undermined um, and possibly fears violence or harm towards themselves. Thank you very much. And um, what has been the court response so far well, during the lockdown to all, all of the situations? So I think the courts have really tried to be very accommodating. So when, where we are, say, for example, in the criminal arena, so as I said, coercive and controlling behavior is an offense. 
and um, a person found guilty of engaging in this behavior is liable to a sentence of up to six months imprisonment if tried and dealt with within the magistrate's court or five years if dealt with in the Crown Court. And of course that needs something of a more serious order. Um, so for example, there's a recent case of um, a young man. Um, and, and sorry, one thing I need to say is the people need to be personally connected. Okay, so you don't need to be husband and wife. You can be um, flatmates. Um, you can be in a just be in a domestic situation um, and or have been in an intimate personal relationship. So um, uh, this recent case related to a young man who was threatening his elderly mother for money to buy drugs. Um, and one day actually eventually punched her. And so he was sentenced to two years um, imprisonment. Um, and I'm highlighting that case because when you ask about the response of the courts, where it's in the criminal arena, the courts, there's just been no change actually. Um, no delay. Um, the courts, the criminal courts have kept on functioning um, as much as possible um, with almost no break whatsoever. So um, the difference would be though, uh, where it's sort of um, a magistrate's court trial, so or getting the person before the court for it to be initially dealt with, there's absolutely no delay in that. Where it comes to, say, a, a more serious case, for example, like the one I just described, which would require trial in the Crown Court, well, that's where, you know, the problems have arisen because of the need for social distancing. Um, you need to be tried by jury in the Crown Court and the courts have not been able to accommodate that um, requirement, you know, of social distancing, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, a lot of cases are basically kicked into the long grass and are not being dealt with with any type of finality probably until the beginning of next year um so that um that could potentially have you know uh, a very serious impact on victims who will want closure um and finality to these sorts of situations um in a rather sort of peculiar way the less serious um the uh the conduct so where where it's only going to be dealt with in the magistrate's court the more likely it's going to be dealt with quickly and the more serious cases um have have to wait so that's a bit of a an unfortunate incongruous um outcome um but yeah i think i think in fairness to them the courts are trying to do as much as they possibly can thank you okay mamia Um, I was going to um, jump to question four and just ask, um, you know, in light of what you've just said, um, what, constitute, um, what constitutes domestic violence? I think that might be able to link in. Yeah, um, well, domestic Samantha. Yeah, um, so um, coercive and controlling behaviour cases fall within the definition of domestic violence. So domestic violence is not... Um, uh, well, it's, it's not a specific act in itself. It can be sort of any of these behaviors. And I think that's the important thing for people to take away. Um, because I think traditionally people have believed that in order for any behavior to be caught by the law and for there to be some sort of legal um, redress, there would have to be 
physical attack. And that is not to say there hasn't been or aren't still cases where there is actual physical, um, some sort of an assault or injury. Um, and I'm sure people will have seen that in the news. Um, we've heard lots about the demand for places in refuges, which actually can't meet the daily requirements and requests of, of people in distress. Um, but I think what is important is sort of back to what we were discussing about coercive and controlling behavior, um, because that sort of thing, um, so even when the action is nonviolent and only verbal, it does fall within the definition of domestic violence. And it's because if you look at the guides um, on this, um, it includes terms that actually are not that familiar to many of us. They're quite new um, uh, and probably quite woke to use that term. So for example, gaslighting, which is really something that's kind of quite a new um, um, certainly to me, uh, term uh, of, for describing being behavior. Um, you see it all over Twitter, you see it on, on Instagram. Well, actually it falls within the CPS guidance on what can constitute um, coercive and controlling behavior. So for example, a person who is subjected, who is subject to repeated gaslighting in their domestic situation um, or within an intimate relationship or family relationship um, could seek recourse to the law um, um, in dealing with it. So yeah, um, it's not just physical is, is the key point there. It can be just verbal. Um, uh, it can be uh, looking, you know, it, it can simply be um, uh, also actions like, for example, wanting that person to give a report of their whereabouts. Um, it's not unheard of for people to have GPS systems in, installed onto their telephones, um, their money to be controlled, their access to their bank accounts to be controlled. Um, those sort of things can happen way before there is any um, escalation to um, a physical attack. So, um, I think in terms of the, the, this forum, it's just sort of important to highlight um, that those issues exist, that those issues are now being recognized by the law and that there is help um, that people can get, um, that people don't have to suffer in silence. In particular, what the law looks at is whether the behavior has an impact on the physical or mental health of the victim. So. Um, people can sometimes see a deterioration in their physical health as a result of um, experiencing, um, you know, being um, the, at the brunt, bearing the brunt of this behavior. But also, um, sometimes it is more of a mental health impact. And one of the key parts of Section 76 is, of the law is whether the behavior has an impact on the person's day-to-day -day activities. So, um, is it impacting on the person's ability to go to school? Have they had to change their route to work? Um, those sorts of things. Um, um, has it had um, any any impact on on, on their medical, um, you know, medical health, that their health um, uh, and physical health? So um, it, it's very broad. It's kind of quite holistic. Um, it's it's unusual in a way for the law to be so 
holistic in its overview. Um, but I suppose that actually this is this is actually the result of years of campaigning and education and re-education by women's groups, um, um, you know, uh, all around the world, you know, um, and um, you know, again, I think it's important to highlight these provisions because a lot of people may not know they exist. They probably think some of the things they experience are just ordinary life and probably their fate um, for the rest of their lives, um, living with or being in contact with that person. But it does not actually have to be that way. Um, and there are steps you can take. And, and if you don't want to, I just want to say this, you may be coming to it. Do you want to, in the question? I was just going to say that it's not yeah. just criminal um, means that are open to people. There are also civil measures that can be taken. So a lot of um, women, it would be no secret, that a lot of women, people don't report these sorts of incidents because they don't want to get the police involved. They don't want to give the person, no matter how um, difficult the, that, or, or nasty seeming the perpetrator can be, they don't want them to have a criminal record, but there's still action that can be taken through the civil courts, okay? Um, yeah, and so that's another means of managing and dealing with the situation. So, yeah. Uh, sorry. I will now ask, um, you know, what, what's, what steps victims can take to protect themselves? I don't know if that yeah. was touched upon, you sort of yeah. alluded to that. Yeah. So victims can, of course, go and report to the police, um, first and foremost, if they think they are, the behaviour is criminal. Um, you can um, also go and try and seek assistance from um, women's refuges. Um, Evelyn probably talk a little bit about what social services can do to assist. Um, you know, because the first call isn't necessarily the call to the police. And often I would say, um, from cases I, 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 um, I have seen, is that, you know, actually action ought to be taken well before um, that is required. But often people don't, right, in these sorts of situations. But, but you know, thirdly, the police can help. So um, that, that's another um, step people can take to help themselves. Um, the other and fourth line of defence is also, as I said, civil courts um, and seeking the advice and assistance of a family lawyer. So people can pop into their local high street solicitor um, and ask for family law advice. Um, and that solicitor will be able to advise them and assist them with seeking civil remedies, um, if necessary, to bring some control um, over the situation and to certainly manage it. You may not be able to control it fully, but it can certainly assist individuals with managing it. Um, and it, it's not just about, it's important to stress, it's not just about husband and wife. These laws protect um, people in personal relationships and or associated persons. So cohabitants um, um, as well, um, but also importantly, children. Sometimes there are children who need these protections um, themselves. Uh, and so that's another important factor to consider. 
Okay, and, and so just... sorry, can I just chip in? I've got um, some statistics from the, mm. um, uh, that talks about uh, how serious this coercive behavior has become of recent. From the Office of National Statistics, it says there were about 17,601 offenses of coercive control reported to the police in the year ending March 2019, compared to just 9,000 in the year ending March 2018. So this kind of behavior is begin, becoming to be noticed. Uh, people are kind of tending to report to the police now. So yes, so the, the, it's quite on the rise. Mm. And, and yeah, and thank you, Daniel. I think that's a really can important I, uh, thing. Can I ask a question, uh, Samantha, perhaps you can answer? I will try. <laughs> okay. um, so, so I was going to ask the question because in the context of uh, this discussion and uh, where we are today with, with the, the, the impact of lockdown, um, it'd be interesting to see or to hear what your observations are, what, what the impact has been on families with the lockdown. Sorry, I've missed, I missed that. Uh, the, 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 it froze. So, so the, the impact of, um, that the lockdown would have had um, on, on these uh, family situations. Um, and, and secondly, whether coercive behavior, as you describe it, can go the other way. Because in the church, for example, Scott, Scott will know this and, and perhaps Ron as well. We often hear and deal with situations where the, uh, let, let me use this word very loosely, uh, antagonism is going from child to parent. And often it happens in single parent families where you've got adult children, um, perhaps um, being antagonistic towards their mothers, single mothers. Mm. Um, so, so, so your thoughts on that sort of, that sort of situation and, and, mm -hmm. and whether that is commonplace in, in your experience? So, um what I will say, so um, I can't speak to, in terms of specific, I think part of what you asked was the specific impact on families over this period. Um, so, I mean, family law is part of what I do. It's not all of what I do, and it's not sort of the, the dominant part or predominant part of my practice. So I probably, probably Daniel may be better placed to speak on that um, specifically in terms of looking at it as an overview. Um, but um, so so some of some of what I say um, may be to some degree. If I try to talk about lockdown overall, well, it's it's slightly anecdotal or based on the news, right? Um, because it's not just it's not um, my uh, yeah um, main practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's not I'm not dealing with it daily. Um, unfortunately, well whatever I'm not dealing with the daily so I can't really speak to that but what I can say is that lockdown has had has exacerbated all of these issues um even from um uh, so in terms of criminal law the domestic violence aspect because people are locked in at home together um and so whereas um and as Evelyn was saying at the beginning they would often have a break there would be some sort of respite um, for people in very difficult situations from just going to work um, or going to school, um, that respite has not exist existed over the lockdown period. Again, as, as um, 
I was highlighting at the beginning, even being cut off from doctors, um, pharmacists, those usual kind of alarm, you know, systems or um, uh, safety nets ha have disappeared or did disappear. To some extent, um, they are coming back mercifully, so that's good. Um, and so that's that's the positive positive aspect of it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I can say um, family relations have been disproportionately affected by this, even in the aspect of children um, law, so private um, child law um, and children's relationships where, say, parents are separated um, and separated parents seeing their children. That's also been adversely affected by lockdown. Um, um, and I don't know, perhaps um, Daniel yes. and or Evelyn will want to add more to that. But to answer your question, which is a, um, I think the more important one that I can assist with was on, you know, and I think very, very good question about how do you protect parents um, from children who might be the perpetrators, you know, in terms of these domestic violence situations, recognising that it is not just limited to husband and wife, you know, the archetypal sort of, you know, um, relationship, um, uh, yeah, paradigm in domestic violence kind of uh, discussion, it, it can go the other way. And um, so absolutely a parent who is, um, who considers themselves to be the victim of this coer coercive and controlling behavior, um, can so I gave the example of the case of the mother who was um, punched by her child um, um, and because he wanted drug money um, essentially so um, the law can will, will deal you know can um, and does and, and and that man received about a two-year term of imprisonment um, I believe it was um and um you know this behavior that had gone on for a long period started off with just threats um and um threats and then you know escalating to uh more severe or serious threats um and then turning up at the mother's house you know banging on the door um escalating to him eventually punching her um and there were other sort of um alarm bells that were sounding because for example the mother fell behind on her rent for her um her her, her property um which was through the council and so they recognized that this woman who had always paid was suddenly falling behind on on payments um and had like a debt of in excess of four thousand which was unheard of for the duration of her tenancy um and and so um yes the law will protect someone in that situation the law does and i think the important thing to underline here is that you're talking about what um perhaps may arise in the church situation is that the the parents in this instance do not need to wait until you know a punch or some kind of physical they don't need to wait for the situation to escalate um seek help in advance um and as I said, again, um, this is probably something Evelyn can chip in on. Social services are there to help um, reach out okay. and ask for it.
All right, excellent, thank you. So in light of um, these issues um, that have been raised, um, how has this impacted the social services? Um, this question is to Basitori uh, uh, and Evelyn and Daniel, if you'd like to chip in as well. Okay, so in my um, experience, this is Evelyn Okomia speaking. So I'm, I'm a lawyer with um, a local authority. And my experience in is that there has been an increase of cases over the last six months and since lockdown. What I've found is that um, there have been a lot of cases that have that have had more serious issues. So where, for example, a child may have been on a child in knee plan or a child protection plan, I found is that some of those issues have then escalated to the legal arena. So it's meant that um, those cases have then escalated to court. I think the, the COVID situation has really put a strain um, on families and it's almost um, like um, with with what COVID has done it's really just acted like um, it's like it's a like the home has become a furnace and some families really really can't cope and unfortunately local authorities are there to help so I think anyone that's listening sometimes there's a bit of a stig stigma with local authorities and social services they're not in the business of trying to remove children from the families I think people need really need to understand that and they are there to help those cases that do escalate to the court arena are typically cases where actually parents don't cooperate with social services, where they don't want to recognise there are difficulties, or they can't see that there are difficulties, and where um, social services are so concerned that they feel that actually the court arena is the best way to deal with it and actually help and, and move things along. But, the, but local authorities are, are a point of call, that, and families should really approach social services if they are struggling. Legally, all local authorities have statutory duties. Section 17 and 20 are the most prominent ones and they have a duty to offer services and offer accommodation to children in situations where families can't cope and they can't offer the requisite parenting that they're supposed to for whatever reason um, it is. Um, so they, they are there to help. But um, yeah, COVID has also put pressure on the service itself. There have been many um, workers and professionals actually self-isolating themselves. So sometimes there is a lack of social workers, there's a lack of lawyers, there's a lack of um, support workers that are available. So even within, so even the professionals themselves, sometimes there is a lack of, of professionals that are able to, to do the work that typically is done on a day-to-day -day basis. So some cases, unfortunately, maybe that weren't so serious have been Kind of put to the back of the list for the meantime that but that also means that sometimes those issues then are exacerbated over time if you don't have the requisite pra um, practitioners that are also dealing with situations so covid has has really had um, a big impact on social services and, and the number of cases um, that are that are coming through but i think slowly as, as things are somewhat get going back to normal there are people returning to, to the office and the government has tried um, to encourage people to go back to work children are now back into school so now there is a little bit of a normality and I have seen even in the last couple of weeks that um, things are starting to stabilize um, somewhat so there is you know still very much hope for the future and I don't think there's any lasting damage but I could definitely see that there was a huge impact and, and families were were suffering but um, speaking from from what my local authority has done social workers do an absolutely um, fantastic job 
I don't deal with the day-to-day -day of dealing with children but what they do is 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 phenomenal in terms of what work they do and I don't think um, children necessarily um, suffered from a lack of, of social work support they've really tried their, their best from what I've seen to still assist them in, in these troubled times as well as dealing with their own personal um, issues. I mean, some, some of them have probably got COVID themselves. They've got family that are suffering from COVID. They've got childcare issues themselves and the workload themselves. So from what I've seen, they, they, they've really tried to, to kind of step up to the mark in terms of the increase in demand for social work help during this time. Thank you. And then um, we do have a social worker present. Yes, <laughs> yes I, think so, uh, as, I think as Evelyn has said, there has been a rise in a number of cases that have come to social services. And just to say that, um, people that are entitled to social services support are people that can't access it. Where, there's, where the support needed is beyond what universal services can provide. So it's beyond what health, education and community services. So it's when those services can't meet the needs of the family, that's when social services step in at that point. And I think some of the families that have really um, suffered during this time are families that have got children with special needs, autistic children, other ch um, children that um, before COVID had a lot of support going into the family homes. And because of COVID and carers not being well, a lot of those families have found themselves in, in situations where they've been solely responsible for the care of their children. So that's been really, really difficult for families that have got children with disabilities, autistic children and things like that. So um, just to say that there is support available, just like Evelyn said, we're not just there to take away children, not to support families that need that support. And every, um, if you feel anybody listening if they feel that they're in that situation where they need support they can contact social services and they will do an assessment of need of that child and so they'll do an assessment and once they've done the assessment they will see what support services they can put in place once they've done the assessment of need and um, you know you can self-refer schools refer um, we get referrals from different places the gps different places so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I just I was going to um, ask more specifically um, to either of you or all three of you, Daniel, Evelyn um, and, and Pasatoy, and, um, can you talk about, you know, what the kind of specific um, support there is for struggling families? Well, as, as I said, the, the support is is when it's beyond what can be offered by the universal services, so health, education. So once those services cannot meet the needs of the family, that's when it's referred to social services. Once they come through the door, there will be an assessment of needs. So the social worker will do an assessment of the family to see what is needed in that family, and they will tailor the support needed to the assessment, to the outcome of the assessment. So some of the things that could be needed, they could help with housing, there could be help, financial help is provided. There's help with um, childcare, there's respite care, there's um, holidays, um, the family centres, CAMS, which is child and health, mental health services, counselling for the family, parental, um, parenting classes. So there's different forms of um, support, but it will be tailored to that family. So they'll do an assessment of that family and the support will be tailored to that family. 
Thank you, Evelyn. Do you have? Yeah. Um, can I just add that some of the support um, may not just be tailored to the child, but also to the parents, because it may be that the parents have some some issues that they need dealt with. So sometimes um, there are assessments, for example, um, of mental health. That there may be um, underlying problems, perhaps, with with parents. So there can be referrals for assessments um, to be done by by a psychiatrist, psychologist, for example to diagnose an underlying mental health or personality um, disorder so that they can get the requisite help to to assist um, with that um, welfare benefit support so some families have very um, have difficulties in actually arranging benefits a benefit system as far as I'm aware is actually quite complex um, and it, it does take a lot to try and arrange that um, yourself it could be in particular if English, for example, is not your first language. There are services out there that can assist with actually um, helping you apply for, for the right benefits and ensuring that you're getting um, the correct benefits. Um, as um, Toyin mentioned as well, there could be counselling services. So CAMS is, 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 one, um, is one service for children where there, there can be therapy counselling offered. The school itself can also offer art therapy, play therapy for children for ex that has for some form of trauma or going through some kind of difficulties as well. The adult themselves might need some counselling and therapy. If there's been a bereavement in family or there's just or they've had some childhood issues perhaps that haven't actually been resolved and that's um, showing perhaps in, in how they function, it's affecting their functioning, their parenting, there can be referrals for, for counselling um, as well. Um, referrals to counselling and assistance can also be done through through the GP as well. So mm -hmm. if, for example, um, families are um, a, a bit hesitant about going to social services, the GP is also a very, very good source of help speaking to the GP about problems that you may be facing and they, through, through their connections, can also make referrals to different services mm -hmm. is, is, as well. So that... Um, families should also um, look to that and as I've mentioned the school as well they will sometimes make their own referrals either to social services or other um, agencies outside agencies for therapy and, and support as well it may be that a child just needs somebody to talk to so there might be a school counsellor that might be able to offer um, offer help to children um, within Camden there's also a service which is called special people there are some parents that actually need help with organizing their day-to-day it might it may be because um, they've got issues or problems themselves with functioning so they may need someone actually to help them organize their their day so that their children get to school on time so that they can organize a routine for themselves so there are actually people and support that can actually go into the home and actually help them organize themselves because then that can that can be a big problem sometimes children don't always get to school or they don't get to school on time because parents can't they don't know how to deal with or handle um, the kind of routine of getting children ready to school but there is help to actually help parents do that if, if they're struggling so most people it's, it's probably quite a simple simple task but for some for others it, it can be quite quite difficult and overwhelming and sometimes what may happen is actually they send their children to school because they, they just don't know how to organize themselves and it's really unfortunate because the child suffers as a result i've had many cases where children fall behind academically by one year two years because they're in school half of the time for, for, for various different reasons and it, it really just shouldn't be like that 
but parents need to try and access the help and not be afraid of any ramifications that may happen as a result of asking for help it's not a form of weakness at all it's actually a form of strength to actually approach a professional and ask for that help and, and support and you're doing it for, for for your children ultimately that that's and for, for yourself as well if you need some support but but children don't have anyone but their parents mm. to guide and help them so it's, it's really important that that help is is accessed in in one form or another brilliant thank you okay so i i have a question for the um Pat, uh, reverend lola, sorry, yeah lola, um lola just just before you go on lola on this last point yes. uh and evelyn have been talking about uh the, the support I, I think it'd be um useful to hear, hear perhaps from scott okay to see um, whether whether the church it has um, and, and what 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 do we do? What does the church have? do? We see this something happen. Yes, that's basically my question, Scott. Actually, what what kind of um, pastor, um, pastoral support can be given to a, a, a victim? Yes, so Reverend Scott. <laughs> oh, your volume. Something's wrong with your sound. Uh, you need to turn up your volume so we, we can't hear you. Everybody hear me now? Perfect. Yes. Thank okay, you. Okay, sorry, I took the phones out. My apologies. I think Samantha touched on it earlier uh, when she was sharing. I think one of the big things is actually tackling the stigma of secrecy. A lot of people are struggling and they don't feel that they can turn to absolutely anyone at any point. Um, and when they do, uh, uh, many, many occasions when people have spoken to me in lockdown, what, it, what it's emerged is patterns of behavior that have been learnt by the pupils or the students at school that they see their friends or even teachers, dare I say it, they have captured that at school. They have learned that behavior at school. And then because of lockdown and everything that's happened, they now have a captive audience with their mother or their stepfather or whoever is the authority in their home. And because they're at home now so much more than when they were at school, they start living that behavior out at home with literally one or two or three people, which has created an incredible amount of tension. But the power of secrecy cannot be underestimated. Uh, we would it would be foolish of us and reticent to ignore that we need to tackle that first because on many many occasions uh, this calendar year where people have shared different things with me they're like oh you don't understand what I've been through that's usually or something a snapshot like that is usually the first thing that's that's communicated when actually they're the 10th the 15th the 20th person the only difference is maybe the variations the behavior in the in the what they've been through what they've been exposed to the length of time consistency these sort of uh, elements but i think what we need to be very very clear with is that we the church need to be much more available i think um certainly with younger generations dare i say it, millennials uh, certainly teenagers they feel that the church for them is really a Sunday activity that their intra, intra, interaction with anyone in the church is solely related to Sunday naturally we are looking to mentor them to disciple them to nurture them and to help them to be 
all these well-rounded individuals that we know that they can be. But I think the primary thing is breaking the stigma of secrecy because when that power is broken, then we have the opportunity and the possibility to start to demonstrate trust. So for a lot of the, um, certainly some of the younger people that I disciple, the consistency that I demonstrate in my relationship with them, they don't have from the pupil, uh, from their students, uh, fellow students at school. They don't have it from either or both family members. They don't have it from any real authority figure in their life. And so you are very, very different in that respect. But actually, when we develop that trust, when we develop that we're not there to tell them what they've done wrong or how they need to change, a list of do's and don'ts, which is how a lot of young people view church these days, but we're actually here to be a soundboard, to be a, a voice, to be a safe space, to use millennial language for them to communicate, you find that they start to open up more, they make themselves more accessible, they make themselves more vulnerable, and as a result of that, they make themselves more transparent. I use the word transparent, not accountable, because accountability develops out of transparency. But when they start to share what's actually been going on, how they feel, um, I'm sure there's some counselors here, it's PCC. I mean, we, we offer very clear in Katie, we offer pastoral support or pastoral care, but it's essentially, we don't do formal counseling, but PCC is person-centered counseling, where the counselor and the counselee would meet, would have a discussion, and the counselor essentially allows the counselee to just communicate whatever it is that's on their heart. They don't correct, they don't um, uh, attempt to say that they're wrong, or they don't challenge anything that the person says. But then they ask them, and how did that make you feel? And why did you choose that response? And then it gives them the, the, the next bridge, if you like, to then communicate what the child or, or the person then wants to, to share with the counselor. That develops a lot of trust. And I think that's something that's distinctly lacking in schools. I think that's distinctly lacking across many, many areas. I think uh, Pastor Toyan mentioned it as well, that people have, can have a negative view of social workers, lawyers, all these people. And actually, church is in a very, very good position at this point to actually offer a lot of the framework and the structure because that's one thing that's fallen completely out of the window for many, many people is the, the order, the routine, the discipline that, that was in their lives prior to lockdown has just fallen away post-lockdown. And with that, there's obviously been an effect on people's mental health, uh, people being in and out of quarantine for long periods of time. But I believe very clearly that the church needs to position themselves as clearly and definitively as possible to be a sound a soundboard, to be a safe space where people can come and share their views without fear of being corrected or condemned. Because I, I'm sure Dr. Solomon and, and Pastor Toyan and others can share what I have found on many occasions when people share a story or a scenario with me and they don't whitewash where they fell short, where they made mistakes, where they know they took the wrong decision, invariably you are capturing the whole truth of that story. That gives you a much better foundation from which to work from than if they simply whitewash it and they dilute the decisions that they made and the wrong things that they did, et cetera, et cetera, which makes it a lot harder because you then have to take so much more time to unpick the threads of the previous behavior before you can address it. Um, and the other thing I think is so important is, particularly with the younger people, is so often we tell them what they've done wrong, but we don't necessarily then show them how to do it right. And we need to actually show the younger people, hey, this is how you can live. This is how you can choose to respond in a Christ-like manner in a certain scenario. And that will bring about substantial change in their lives. So that would, those would be some of my reflections at this point.
Right. All right, thank you very much. Yeah. And um, in terms of, uh, let me touched on this already, but um, in terms of um, support for struggling um, wife or husband, um, what kind of pastoral support can be given? Yes, I think it's very, very important that there everyone needs to know that we in KC we thrive on discipleship but also very very strong on pastoral care support and in any first instance the first port of call invariably should be the person's cell leader should be the pastoral telephone number which we can make available that in the group chat now and there's another i think another thing that we need to help people overcome is that they are not obliged to divulge everything with the first person that they speak to um because a lot of people at that point if they feel they have to commit everything up front they automatically check out you're asking for too much too quickly whereas actually what happens is that we build that over time but the pastoral support is very very strong we lead it largely through the cells but we also have a full pastoral department pastor claudette pastor kofi myself jean eddie walsh there's a number of people involved in that uh, and so the first port of call should always be the cell leader this is how pastor colin the senior leader structures it, it should always be the cell leader if for whatever reason the cell leader feels um, ill-equipped or just doesn't feel that they have the necessary capacity to help the person with this scenario, and it could be very, very bespoke, it could be quite generic, it could be largely in the middle, then the next step would be for that person to contact what's called their primary leader. Um, and so there are some primary leaders in, in the room, and then that person would either take the case on or take the person on themselves or assign a number of people that have helped others become delivered and set free and restored from the particular scenario and assign someone to help them with that. And then it's a real journey. Um, we, I know Solomon and I, we speak regularly, we create milestones. There's, there's certain um, prerequisites that we build and establish through the process so that the person has a clear understanding that this is where you are now and this is the journey that we want to take you on so that they have all of that up front so it's not just a one-off meeting, that there's actually a, a real journey that they can go on to freedom and wholeness and ultimately deliverance from whatever the situation is. And that I have found, particularly with the men, has been very, very helpful because you present everything up front uh, and so it, they know what they're buying into. It's not just, you know, we'll give you a, a two-hour meeting here, we'll pray for you on the phone every other Friday, which is nice, and don't get me wrong, please, it has tremendous value. But the goal here is to bring about victory. The goal here is for the person to be free from whatever the challenge is, not merely just to massage it and to help them understand. And one of the first questions, you know, I, I share this publicly with you good people, but also, you know, privately, anytime anyone ever comes to me with a challenge, the first question I ask them is I say, tell them everything, leave nothing out. And they invariably all do. And then I ask them a question and almost invariably everyone falls into this trap but then when I ask them the question again, they realize that it was a trap. I say, do you want me just to understand what it is that you're going through? Because I can do that. Or do you want help to break free and live in victory from what it is that you want to go, what you're going through? And invariably everyone says, oh, you know, I need someone that understands, et cetera, et cetera. But then actually when you represent it, they then say, I need someone to help me get through this. And I think that's so important because, you know, so often, um, 
um, willpower uh, is horribly insufficient. You know, uh, people, whether it's challenges, addictions, mindsets, willpower alone of that person is insufficient. That actually you need a second and a third pair of eyes and, and mindset and focus um, to help people overcome that. Otherwise, you are always and solely looking at your challenge or your situation from your point of view. Um, and, and to speak to, I think, something Samantha touched on earlier, you know, people can go so far, they end up going the other way and embracing what, what I'm sure we all know as Stockholm Syndrome, where they, the person that has been abusing them, the person that has been castigating them and, and, and treating them horrendously, they end up convincing themselves that they deserve it. Uh, and not only that, they then become uh, almost um, submissive completely to that person and thinking that this is completely normal behavior, that this is very much a part of my life, that I need to now embrace this. And that's why people end up calling themselves, you know, they, they put labels to them, to their names. So, you know, I've, I've sat in a meetings, for example, um, not because I've ever been one, but because I've gone with friends of mine that are, are recovering alcoholics. And, and the first thing when you walk in, you can't share anything except your first name, where you work, where you live, anything. You sit in a room and the first thing everyone says is, oh, my name is Scott and I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I'm just like, you're never gonna overcome this because you're, the label, mentally, the label that you've given yourself is the very problem that you're trying to overcome. And so we need to break that in people. A lot of it's mindsets. Um, you know, we need to help people embrace responsibility. Reflection is very, very important and relationship. I call them three R's, relationship, responsibility, and reflection. Help people, helping people reflect on their behavior, helping people embrace their responsibility, uh, and helping people really develop healthy relationships of genuine transparency and accountability. And accountability is not me or, or whoever the, the victim or, or person is, phoning up and sharing with someone um, an hour after the incident has happened. I'm feeling really angry right now. I want to punch a wall in or whatever. I'm going to phone Dr. Solomon, Pastor Kemi or whoever and share that before the incident, not after. Because that will then help people change their pattern of thinking and behavior. And that will help them overcome it a lot quicker than if you're... Proactive, reactive, it's so much better to be proactive than reactive on it. And so those are some of my reflections. Sorry if I've been speaking too long, apologies. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask Daniel and um, maybe Samantha uh, what recourse there is for um, a, a, a victim of, of domestic violence in terms of um, in a relationship between a husband and a wife. And then, but before that, if I can just go around and um, ask everyone, what would you say in your opinion? I mean, we've already touched on it, are the different reasons why this abuse happens, why the man hits or why the woman hits or why there's verbal abuse. You right. want any one of us? <laughs> all of you, all of you, if you can okay. all just say Sorry. one, one, one each. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll like time it's, um, um, Oh, sorry. A lot of the time it's um, literally copy and paste um, it's what the person's been exposed to and they don't, they don't expect or know anything different. And I think someone touched upon that earlier. Okay. Right. Thank you. Um, I, I would like to say um, when you compare to what's been happening before COVID, I would say it's kind of a transfer aggression. A lot of people are getting frustrated and when they are confined to a, a little space, 
they tend to become aggressive with the person closest to them. And most probably it's going to be the wife or the husband who is closest to them. So they kind of, instead of venting their anger elsewhere, they vent it to the person who is next to them. So that's why we tend to see a lot of abuse between partners. Yes, most essentially it's kind of a transfer aggression. Hmm. All right, thank you. Anybody else? It could be like internal um, frustrations and maybe things that they've experienced perhaps from their past. Um, it may be they've suffered some kind of trauma as, um, as a child or within their childhood, which is then kind of being spilled out as, as domestic abuse. And as um, has been said, unfortunately, it's, it's then put on the, the person or the people that are most closest to them. Okay. Um, mm. Anyone else? I mean, I think I can only echo what people have already said, which is that usually it's because that person, and this is not to make an excuse for them, it does not make an excuse for the behavior, but that they've got problems themselves, internal personal issues that they have not addressed, that remain unresolved. Um, and they can be so wide ranging. Um, uh, but. The key point is that you have to stamp on it. You have to nip it in the bud and it should not be tolerated. And, um, you know, as we're talking, I'm just reflecting actually on um, the story. And I think this is relevant to, to say the woman in Turkey was recently murdered by a man. Um, a, a lot of people might have done that black and white uh, social media challenge sharing a picture of themselves, appreciating themselves as a woman. And that was actually started by um, women in Turkey as a result of a young woman who was killed by a man simply because she did not do what he wanted her to do. It's unclear that they were in a relationship. Um, she, she was simply women on the street being asked to do or be certain things and refusing. And at the end of the day, um, you know, um, that behavior is wrong. Anyone thinking that they should dominate or dictate what happens in the life of another is wrong, self-evidently. And so, um, um, you know, it should be nipped in the bud, um, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and this, in this arena and in the church arena, you know, you can, you can see that that is not the right behavior that should happen, um, you know, it's simply, um, yeah. Uh, can, right. can, I just, yeah. can I just add is, is, as you. well, is that the effect on this behavior on children is, it can't be emphasized enough the damage that it does um, to children in households where there is um, a domestic abuse, whether it's being inflicted on them personally or whether children are witnessing it mm. between their, their, their parents or, or other family members. The damage that it is, is called that it causes is is virtually um, erasable. You can't erase that that damage. So if there are any um, victims um, out there, if you can find the strength somehow, even if it's not for yourself, for your children to try and get that support to shield your children from seeing and witnessing all of this, because it, it just has long life um, effects on them. And in the work I do. Um, often you see that where parents perhaps are really struggling to look after their children, if you look deep into their past, there are issues of mm -hmm. the 
domestic um, abuse, either from what they've witnessed or what they've experienced. And it just causes a long um, term traumatic um, effect on them. Mm. The police um, take on the, the help and seek help for that. Something which I think hasn't been touched on is that there are um, civil remedies. So Samantha um, went through in, in great detail. De um, great detail extensively about the kind of criminal remedies, but there are civil remedies in terms of um, injunctions. So you've got a non-molestation order, which you can get from family courts, um, magistrates courts as well, which is a form of injunction that will stop somebody from continuing um, either the threatening or physical or um, behavior or harassment, wh whatever it may be. And um, you can get an injunction in that respect that will stop somebody from approaching you or coming near you. Along with that, you've got something called an occupation order where a judge will actually look at a situation and they can actually exclude people from the home. So even if, for example, you have a house and the house belongs to your partner or it's shared between you, if the court thinks actually that it is appropriate for I'll use the example of a mother and her children to remain in a property whilst um, a husband is excluded from that property for a certain period of time. Those are orders that the court can grant. And what it does is it, it, it will stop the um, abuse happening. It will give um, the, the mother um, or, or the father, whoever is um, experiencing the abuse, time to actually seek help to actually either get alternative com accommodation or just just to give you some space to sort out what you want to do so there are civil um, remedies so please approach um, a family office um, a family solicitor or um, attend the citizens advice and um, bureau law centers to, to get that advice because some people are afraid of going to the police they don't want to deal with the police, but there are civil remedies where you don't have to deal with the police in, 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 that, in, in that respect. Um, if the situation is extremely serious, of course, call the police, because along with um, the police getting involved, it's likely that there will be bail conditions in place. So that's, I suppose, another form of injunction as well. So if there are bail conditions after somebody has been arrested, that will also um, stop the abuse by that person. Um, maybe returning to the home or come to so there are many many different ways okay. but the civil route is also another way that um, people that people can get the help and support right. they need from from abuse mm. all right excellent can thank I you say one um, yeah and just very quickly the, the point about the civil route is it can happen very quickly so just to reiterate yeah. that yes so, so it can be a very yes. quick term so people really mustn't underestimate the, the, the help that is available through civil courts um, by going to your family, high street solicitor, anyone, um, citizens advice bureau, um, and even if it doesn't give you a permanent remedy, it can buy you time and it can also guarantee your safety. Yes. So Excellent. thank you. All right, so um, oh, which that was the question I was going to ask Daniel, <laughs> but I see it's already been answered. All right, so uh, we've still got some more, but um, we are going to pause um, briefly to hear a, a short message from Esther, and then we'll carry on with the conversation, the discussions. And again, if anyone has any questions, uh, whether for yourself or for a friend, please put them on the chat and we'll deal with them after Esther's message during the Q&A. Mm -hmm. If you have a prayer request as well, please put on the chat. And then um, we will deal with um, anything else you have to say after um, Esther's message. Thank you. Thank you, Lola. Thank you to all the panelists. We've um, been so informed.
transformed and, and it's been absolutely wonderful. And I'm sure for many of us, there are a lot of things that we can take back and help those of our friends and family in need. And we've all been listening to different ways in which we can help people who have really um, had terrible experiences during, during this COVID time. But there's one person who I'd like to tell you about, one person who, above all, would love to help you, would love to come alongside you, would love to protect you, would love to keep you, would love to provide for you during this time. It's about the Father God. And I want to tell you a story about his great love, his great love for his child. So there's a story about this Jewish man and he actually went from having great wealth to extreme poverty. Now he was born in great wealth. I mean, his father was so wealthy. His father had servants who waited on him hand and foot. He had everything he could possibly want. And one day he said to his father, I want all my inheritance. Give me everything that you have for me. I don't want to stay with you anymore. I don't care about whatever your plans and your purposes for my life. I want to do what I want. And his father, very sad to do this, gave the son all the inheritance that belonged to the son. And the son went away and lived an incredible, crazy lifestyle, a Las Vegas lifestyle, wasted all his money on partying and all these different things. And then an economic crisis hit the land, much like what we've had today with COVID-19. He found himself with no money, no more friends, no home, nothing. He was rejected, he was abused by people, he was just left to just die. So he found himself a job. And in the Jewish culture, this job that he found himself was the lowest job a person could do. He found himself working on a farm, feeding pigs. For Jewish people, that's the lowest thing you could possibly do. And he was feeding pigs, but what's wrong with this job is that not only is it the lowest of lowest jobs, this person would have been vulnerable to abuse, to all kinds of uh, maltreatment, to not being paid. He was so hungry that he even considered eating the food that he was feeding to the pigs. One day he came to his senses and he thought, hang on a minute, my father is so wealthy. He has hired servants who dress better than me, who are fed better than me. I'm gonna go home to my father. I'm gonna say, I'm sorry I dishonored you. And I'm going to ask my father to take me back, not as a son, but as a hired servant. What he didn't know was that his father had been looking for him every single day. His father couldn't wait for him to come home. His father kept on believing and praying that one day my son will come home. And when that wonderful day came and he saw his son, his father picked up his robe, lifted up his robe and he ran to his son. He exposed his ankles. Now, for some of us, we may think, well, what's the big deal about exposing your ankles? But in that day, in the Jewish culture, for a man to expose his ankles, was the most shameful thing a man could do. <clears throat> and not only that, a man who is wealthy, a man who has prominence and respect to show his ankles in public was just dreadful. But this father didn't care about being humiliated. He didn't care about the culture. 
All he cared about is that my son has come home. <laughs> and the son said to the father, I deserve to be rejected. I deserve to be punished. I deserve to be live in poverty. I've put you to shame. I've dishonored you. Just take me back as a hired servant. And the father said to him, there is no way that's going to happen. You are my son and I love you. And the father gave him new robes, new shoes and a ring of sonship and said to him, you were lost, but now you're found. And some of us may be thinking, okay, Esther, wonderful story. What the heck does that have to do with my situation and COVID-19? Well, for some of us, maybe before COVID-19 hit, we were doing our own thing. We were like the son. We paid absolutely no regard to what, what the father had for our lives. We did what we wanted, when we wanted, how we wanted. We lived our lives without any care for his plans and purposes. But then during COVID-19, much like the economic crisis the son faced, some of us have faced much more than just economic struggles and financial struggles. Some of us have faced despair, pain, hopelessness, abuse, violence, rejection, marital breakdown, breakdown with our, our children. And some of us have gone through such tough times that we've wanted to give up. We've wanted to just throw the towel in, commit suicide. We've thought of everything that we could do. But there's something I want you to know is that the God, the Father, is out there and he's looking for you. He's got his arms stretched out wide every day and he just wants his child, his son, his daughter to come home. He doesn't care about what you've done. He doesn't care about the trouble you're in. He wants to pick you up, bring you into his family, care for your welfare and just love on you. And that's why he sent his son Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to pay the price that we could never pay. You see, because every single one of us at some point we've rejected God, we've ignored him, we've completely disregarded him, that has amounted to sin. But Jesus said, you know what? I will pay the price. And he died on the cross and he said, instead of Esther experiencing shame, I'm going to experience the shame on the cross. Instead of Esther experiencing poverty, I'm going to take that on the cross. Instead of Esther being punished, I'm going to take that on the cross. Everything that we deserve because we've rejected the Father and his love for us, Jesus took on the cross. And his arms are still stretched out wide to every single one of us, wanting to bring us into his family and to care for us. So I'm just going to say a quick, simple prayer over all of you. And for some of you, if you want to say this prayer, I would invite you to say this prayer with me. It may be the first time you're saying this prayer to God. For others of you, you've said this prayer before, but you know that you're far away from God. You know that you've completely rejected God. During this time, you've experienced so much hurt and so much pain. I want you to know that there's a father who loves you, who loves you deeply. And so I'm going to say this prayer. And if you want, just repeat it after me. Just say, Father God, I know that I've rejected you. I know that I've lived life my way. But Lord, I've come to realize that despite everything that I've gone through, the one thing I've done is I've rejected you. And I want you in my life. I want you to take me to your family. I know that you will care for me. I know that you wouldn't hurt me. I know that you wouldn't abuse me. I know that you wouldn't deprive me. I know, Father God, that you wouldn't hit me. 
I know you wouldn't steal from me. I know, Father God, that you are there to take care of me all the days of my life because I am your son, because I am your daughter, because I am your beloved child. And so I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want him to be my Lord, to be my master, to take care of me, to lead me and guide me, to, to protect me, to provide for me during this time. I give you my life as best as I know how. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you amen. said that prayer, friends, if you said that prayer, friends, just to say that, you know, we call it being born again. You've had a brand new start to life. And we just want to welcome you to our family. We would love to hear from you. So if you could email us at lawyers at kt.org or just call the pastoral line that Scott set up and just say, I want to accept the Father's love and we will happily guide you on this journey. And so may God bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up his countenance towards you and give you his peace. May he write his name on your forehead and bless you with all of himself. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Esther. Okay, so um, Mamiya is going to take us through some of the questions that we received. Um, but before then, um, Pastor Tony, um, Samantha, Daniel, and Evan, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, yes, I would like just to quickly add uh, regarding the application process in the family court. Uh, people should be aware that if you want to make an application uh, for an injunction uh, against uh, domestic violence, it's free. The application is free in the family court. You don't have to think of the cost. Just fill out the form, take it to the nearest family court to you, and the court will be able to take action. Either immediately, that's without informing the abuser, or if you need the abuser to be informed, they can inform him as well. So you don't need to waste time thinking of fund or finan uh, finances. The application to the family court for an injunction is always free. So make use of this opportunity if you need to make an application to the family court. Yeah. Thank you. Pastor Tony? I think just picking up from what Evelyn said, um, the longer, if you're, if you have children and you're in a domestic violence situation, the longer you stay in that situation without taking action, the more effect it will have on the children. So you are actually causing harm to the children by them remaining in that and witnessing that domestic violence. So I would say if you have children, especially if you have, have children in the home, you need to think about protecting your children in that situation. So you need mm -hmm. to take action. Thank you. And then um, Samantha. Yeah, I just wanted to add a really quick point, a couple of points. First of all, to um, completely support um, what has been said before and what um, Pastor Toyin's just said um, can't be sort of emphasised enough um, in terms of um, criminal practice and I know people won't want to hear this but it's actually the truth often when you meet people who have ended up on the wrong side of the law um, when you dig deeper you find out there are issues um, underlying issues in 
their the homes they they grew in in their family situations and how they grew up their childhoods that were not resolved um and can lead to those per people becoming not necessarily perpetrators themselves that is a possible outcome but other kinds of um egregious behavior which they can't really explain themselves um so altogether usually law abiding whether it's drug use or or even fraud <laughs> just things that they would never have expected um and you dig deeper and and there's um underlying issues so so just that um and and i'm not saying that's always the cause and excusing that behavior but it's an important consideration but i just wanted to uh, respond um uh, highlight again the question solomon asked about whether where it's a mother or parent who who is actually the victim um and what steps they can take i think that um evelyn um and daniel and pastorian have addressed this issue but i just wanted to highlight it again so that that person and and pastor scott is that you can obviously remember speak to the church and the church will guide you through it but actually when it comes to you at the, in the uh, in pastoral care remembering the the support system that is there before you even go to the police can that parent speak to their gp you've got to think about the age of the child um and the nature of the problem and that's how you decide how you want to deal with it so is it appropriate to go to the gp is it appropriate to go to the school um before you escalate it to anything that requires um law enforcement police intervention so that was all i wanted to add all right excellent thank you and um evelyn um and this will bring us to the end of this part um apart from the normal family law proceedings there's also the um fdac which is the um family drugs and alcoholic court which has been set up to help um alcoholic parents um in terms of abuse i mean we've spoken about the different reasons um why people are abusive, but um, one of them, of course, is alcohol um, or drug addiction. So can you tell us more about the, um, this particular route, uh, very briefly, um, as we wrap up? Okay, so um, the Family Drug Alcohol Court, um, typically known as, as FDAC, was set up as, as um, an alternative way of dealing with um, parents that have difficulties parenting their children, but are suffering from... Um, adverse effects such as alcohol, drugs, and also um, mental health as well. It also deals with parents that suffer from mental health issues. So that particular court arena is taken out of the normal care proceedings route. And although it happened in the same family court, it is, um, it's a different structure where you actually have a couple of designated judges that will just deal with those cases and it involves um, support services so there'll be um, consistent drug and alcohol testing if those are the issues as well as support services so it's a way of trying to nurture and help parents overcome their difficulties um, so that they're able to um, either resume care um, continue care of their children or, or get care of their, their children back if they've they've been removed um, so really it's geared to to parents that have not only long-standing issues but also where they suspect there are issues because there are a lot of parents that are in denial that they even have these difficulties and the support services that are involved in in FDAC do try and help tease out these difficulties so that they can receive the help 
Um, sometimes it is very, very difficult for parents to approach services. They don't know where to go. They don't want to admit they have problems. But actually, FDAC forces these parents to actually address the issues because it is actually the local authority that will issue an application into court in the normal way of court proceedings because they are very, very concerned about the care that a child is receiving. And the local authority will take it upon themselves to issue that case into FDAP themselves because they can clearly see that there are issues there to do with alcohol, drugs or mental health. And that process also is a bit more nurturing. The court hearings are a little bit more informal and also it, the proceedings can take a little bit longer. There's typically a 26 week um, deadline which the courts try to adhere to in trying to resolve cases. But with FDAC cases, they tend to go on a little bit longer just to try and help the parents if there's been a setback or the court needs a bit more time to see whether a parent can actually overcome the difficulties. So it's, 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 very, it's a pioneering um, program. It's been going on for about um, eight to 10 years now. And we've seen a lot of success stories where parents have actually overcome their difficulties and actually resumed care of, of, of their children. And if anyone um, is faced with those difficulties and there is an application made into court um, and it does go into FDAC, the advice is to take on the support. It's the best support that you will ever get in dealing with those problems because it's done in such a holistic way where you've got testing and you've got support services and you've got social workers and you've actually got the court arena. And that doesn't typically happen um, in a way where they're all together helping parents like that. There's so much support within that particular um, um, legal proceeding. So it's, it's always best to sign up to it and to, to engage in, to, in the support as best they can. And the services are longstanding. Often when the proceedings are over, parents can still access the support that's available through FDAC. So it's almost like it's a, a, a lifelong support network um, that you have. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Okay, so um, we've now come to the end of the session. Um, um, I'm going to invite Dr. Solomon to please say uh, a prayer, especially for those who are um, suffering at the moment and um, concern everything we have discussed. And then after the prayer, uh, Mamiya um, will bring forward a couple of questions and, and then that will be it. Thank you. <clears throat> Lord, we're grateful for this time to share, to gather together. We thank you for a platform to be able to speak and a platform to be able to help. We, we thank you because your presence is ever sufficient and you are always there. Lord, for those uh, who are struggling, for those who uh, have challenges um, in this and every other issue, out of this lockdown, out of this pandemic, we, we are grateful for your presence, your love and your care. We pray that you will, by your Holy Spirit, um, you will stir every mind, every heart, Lord, and you will minister in the way that only you can. Lord, for, 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 the, for the church, the, the community, we are grateful for the presence and the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And we ask you that you will glorify your name 
in every one of our lives, in every circumstance, in every situation, let the victory that comes from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, let that victory, Father, let it be our portion, every single one of us in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Bring comfort, bring, bring resolution, bring joy into the lives of every single member of our community and those we reach out to that we will see your name glorified and your kingdom established. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Dr. Solomon. Okay, so we've run out of time, uh, but we're just going to stay uh, for just about five more minutes to deal with some of the questions in the Q&A. Uh, thank you, Mamiya. Yeah, so we had a question into the uh, KT um, lawyers at kt.org um, inbox. Um, um, one of the questions, it was, it was quite long, but I'm just going to uh, touch on it. Um, and it's going to go to Daniel. And if um, Samantha does want to um, touch on it, then please do. Um, it was a question about stalking. Um, and uh, we've seen the question. And uh, the question was, the person had been stalked for quite a long period of time. Um, and they wanted to know what sort of support was available um, if someone feels stalked um, or is being stalked uh, what what can you what guidance can you can you offer Daniel um, yes thank you I think um, it depends on who is talking to the other person it depends what kind of relationship that is between them like we discussed earlier uh, when it comes to domestic violence there should normally be a connection between the person who has been abused and the abuser. That is not the associated person. But in the case of this person, I did, I, I did see that question is saying a neighbor, a neighbor, that they, they, are not, they, are not, they are not connected. So I kind of feel the, 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 the remedy that will be available to this person is to kind of try and get in, in an injunction against harassment. Okay, uh, not necessarily, um, um, uh, it's, it's part of domestic violence though, but the available remedy should be harassment, can go to court and ask, uh, uh, make an application for an injunction against the person. And again, talking can be either civil or criminal. I think I will, 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 will highlight this before. And, and, and yes, it's, it's, it's the only available option is go to court, report to the police, and let the police know what's going on because essentially it could be dangerous, it could be threat to life, and let the police know what's going on. And they probably could get the person arrested, caution, and take it from there. But if it's going to be on the civil aspect of it, the remedy available is to go to court, apply for an injunction against harassment. Thank you. And then Samantha, you want to say something here? You know, um, just to reiterate those points, that the remedies are both criminals and civil. Um, <clears throat> from this question, it seemed to me, um, um, and as you've already said, Daniel, that this person needs to take action um, and get protection. It seemed to me that the, the behaviour was of an order that was potentially criminal. Um, and so they really ought to go to the police pronto um, and get help. Um, Itemise, you know, uh, note down the issues, uh, the, the specific behaviour that's arisen, um, where the law will protect you, even if the, the stalking um, or harassment is being done by a third party. 
um, and not by the relevant person, you know, the stalker directly, the law can still intervene. Um, and the Protection from Harassment Act um, um, exists specifically um, to deal with this sort of behaviour. So there is, there is help out there. Um, it might sound crazy, but actually the law, you know, lawyers, uh, policemen, lawyers have seen crazier things. <laughs> so it can be dealt with. Um, and the important thing, um, um, as Pastor Scott said before, is absolutely just speaking up, not suffering in silence, and not thinking, um, again, as the law now recognises, that the person, the victim, is crazy, um, and that it's not happening. It is, it is happening, or if it is happening, itemise it so you can prove it, um, note it down, and, and go get help. Can I ask off the back that is there um financial um support or is um help available to bring such claims you know even if it's through sort of charitable um organizations especially for, for civil do you do either of you know uh like i said earlier when it comes to the civil courts uh making an application is free okay but if you need representation you may need to approach um a solicitor for that and normally the help available is through legal aid so you have to be tested to, uh, through means, mean tested to see if you qualify for legal aid. But if not, essentially you may have to go private. But yes, the form itself is free. Go to court, get the form, submit it, and you'll be heard. Brilliant. Yeah, and just to say, I mean, um, uh, because as Daniel's saying, this person could possibly get a civil order um, in their favor, so non-molestation type order, injunction. Um, but also, um, if you're going to the police, it's free. You don't have to pay. Brilliant. So just go. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so next question, um, which we have just covered off, yes, application is free. Um, there's a question here, um, if you're a designated um, church social worker, does the church have its own safeguarding um, pathway in or can they only refer and signpost? Um, I was going to maybe ask um, Dr. Solomon on that or um, maybe pass the toy in. I don't know. I, think, I mean, Kensington Temple is part of the Ealing Church of Churches and they have a designated safeguarding officer there. Um, Katie also, every, every Ealing Church has a designated safeguarding officer. So they will, and the procedures, so they will know the procedures to follow. So if someone discloses something of a, of a safeguarding issue in the church, they will follow those procedures. So the church will have to follow those procedures and they will have to, if it's a safeguarding issue, refer it on to the appropriate social services in the area that's concerned. But every church is governed by the same procedures, safeguarding procedures. And they get training, um, I think, yearly. So there, is, there will be a designated safeguarding lead in Kensington Temple who would be a social worker. I don't know who it is, but there will be somebody in KT that's a, that will be, that is a lead. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Solomon, did you want to add anything or not? Uh, no, that's great. Amanda, Amanda is in charge of that. And I think she's, the, she's one of the designated people who works with social services. Okay. Can I, can I, I add one thing? Go for it. Just um, back to the question about um, perpetrators where um, the perpetrator of the violence is a child. I've made um, reference
reference to fact about going to the GP or the school, but I just wanted to draw it out that the reason the parent um, needs to think about the appropriate response and that it might not just be police is they've got to think about what are the issues underlying that behavior from the child. Um, because it is after all a child you're dealing with and can you intervene in a way that is going to assist that child initially as opposed to, for example, even um, alienating that child. So of course that person needs to take action to protect themselves, but I think, um, um, and anyone else may want to chip in on this, but the reason you might want to consider what other help that say the school or the GP can give is that that child may have mental health difficulties or other social um, or social um, behavioral issues that there will be other help for. So if they are threatening their parent, you've got to think about how they're behaving in other arenas um, because there will most likely be um, evidence of that behavioral problem in other arenas. And then you can have something um, all services are very um, in clear on and focused on um, now is a more joined up approach tackling that behavior. So the only route, the, the first port of call does not have to be criminal um, law enforcement. Um, it can be sort of actually sort of almost treatment to, to see what are the underlying problems, issues that are causing whoever it is, the child, with a child, um, to behave that way. I don't think the same applies to an adult, um, where the perpetrator is an adult, go for civil remedies or go, go to the police because, you know, well, they should be um, able to control themselves or, in, you know, more in control of their, their behaviour. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Okay. Um, I think that's all the questions. I mean, we, ha we have seen, we have some questions on um, uh, COVID vaccination, but just to say that, you know, we are not qualified on this uh, forum or amongst the panel members to kind of discuss that or to comment on that. Um, and so we aren't going to uh, touch on those. Um, just Lola, to you, there was one question on, about the KT, um, our lawyer's KT um, email, can it be used to discuss confidential matters? Do you want to touch on that? Well, you can send the question to us and then we will deal with it accordingly. Um, the other thing I just need to touch on is that all the information that you've received here today, as I mentioned before, um, it's just guidance. Um, we're not giving legal advice. None of it should be taken as legal advice. It's just purely um, guidance for you. So we have now come to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies for running over slightly. It's been a wonderful time. I'd like to say a very special thank you to our panel speakers. Um, Pastor Tony Awayer, thank you. Um, uh, on behalf of our senior ministers, uh, Pastors Colin and Amanda, I'd like to say a very special thank you to our panel speakers, Pastor Tony, Evelyn, Samantha, and Daniel is one of us, but thank you anyway, Daniel. <laughs> And then, of course, Reverend Scott as well. And to my fellow KTLF members, thank you. Um, and thank you, everybody, for logging in, for joining. If you have any questions or you want more information on what has been shared, please send us an email at lawyers at kt.org. We will deal with those questions. And um, in, in terms of the confidentiality, there's confidentiality as well. And um, I think that's it. So again, 
thank you everybody if you have any questions or you want more information please send us an email and we'll deal with it accordingly and we as uh, dr solomon mentioned earlier we we would really appreciate your feedback so again send us your email addresses or just send us an email and then we will send you the uh, feedback forms and we work on your um, feedback thank you very much um dr solomon is there anything you want to say before we close that's it Thank you, thank you, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you. Okay.